0: MyPatriotSupply.com
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Matterphile, where this episode I was fortunate enough to have the chance of speaking with Mr. Andrew Nixon. Andrew is the author of probably some of the most influential English language texts on the Paraguayan political economy, as well as the Paraguayan economy, other than the OECD reports that have been published. The conversation itself is incredibly informative and covers a wide range of subjects including the informal and illicit sectors in Paraguay, the political inertia that prevents structural economic change and economic development, Paraguay's relationship with Brazil, Paraguay's production of soybean exports, as well as media conglomerates in Paraguay. We discuss in slight amounts of detail the structural reforms that are necessary to help the Paraguayan economy grow and the role of the Itaipu Dam and hydroelectricity in helping the Paraguayan economy develop and grow. Here's the conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of Matterphile, where we have the pleasure of talking to Andrew Nixon, who is currently an honorary reader at the University of Birmingham and has decades of experience with developmental economics, especially in Latin America. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. Well, thank you very much, Assam, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I think I want to start with something that's quite positive in Paraguay's economy, which is that after the Streisner and after the economic crash in the late 20th century, Paraguay has actually demonstrated sustained economic growth, unlike Argentina. How has it managed to sustain this economic growth, and is it sustainable going into the future? It's true that um, uh, from about 90, the mid
2: 1990s, and particularly after 2005, the economy moved into a higher speed. This uh, faster growth rate, which, um, until the pandemic hit us, uh, was above the Latin American average, has been primarily externally generated. Uh, The faster growth is almost totally uh, due to growing demand for Paraguay's agricultural exports, particularly a soybean, but increasingly a range of other cereals, such as rice, sesame and even maize or corn and also uh, meat exports. That has been what is driving the, the growth of the Paraguayan economy and, and again like much of Latin America, much of this of these products
1: end up in um, the People's Republic of China. All right and you mentioned Covid-19 so I want to briefly touch on Covid-19 because presumably this is an export-based economy or an export-based growth that's probably going to stop or be hindered by COVID-19 and changes in supply chains? Well, here's the paradox. Um, not actually the case. Um,
2: what we find, if we look at the data for, <clears throat> for this year, the soybean harvest, soy, soybean is planted in September and uh, is uh, harvested in, in March every year. So the 2019-2020 season was a record. Paraguay's soybean harvest was a record, 10.3 million tons. It's now the fourth, it's a small country, but it's actually the fourth largest exporter of soybean onto the world market. And so soybean exports, although the world price has dropped a little bit, not much, and um, soybean exports this year will be um, as high as last year, and probably a little bit high. But on top of that, this is the most extraordinary thing, meat exports for the first half of 2020 rose by in value terms by 13% above the comparable figure for the first half of 2019. But this is telling us something very interesting, and in some ways rather worrying about the long-term development of the country you have one part of the economy, this commercial agriculture and and modern cattle ranching, operating, to a large extent, separate from the rest of the domestic economy, where still 65% of the population uh, work in what's called the informal sector, living from day to day without any social security whatsoever, trying to make ends meet for their families. So the obvious question then is is why is this happening? And, and the simple answer is that the linkages between this fast-growing very efficient commercial agricultural sector and the rest of the economy are very small and they're very small because commercial agriculture is as commercial for example as it is in the united kingdom in some areas more 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 modern more technologically sophisticated and uh, one tractor driver for example will harvest 250 hectares in, in a matter of days there, there is a very little need for labor it is highly capital intensive and that is um to a lesser extent in the cattle ranching sector but that's also becoming far more capital intensive as as uh, animals are feed fed stock fed which means that they they aren't allowed to range widely in the pampas uh, but they they are in, in small places and they are fed intensively through troughs um, in which a feed is brought to them rather than um, uh, getting their feed from, from the grass.
1: All right. But seeing as most of the economic export is coming from agriculture and most of the economic growth is derived from agriculture, do you think the economy is overly dependent on agriculture? Is there a need for diversification I, I agree with you, I think there is a long a need
2: in the long run to tweak and perhaps more than tweak the structure of the economy and make it less dependent on commercial agriculture to integrate the the two sectors as it were of the economy more but more important than that to give more importance to industrialization and Here we have the 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 fortune of Paraguay, which has one of the largest uh, with Nepal. In, in, the, in, in Asia, it has one of the largest endowments
1: per capita of hydroelectric energy, and um, it's hardly been used. As I understand it, the hydroelectric endowment that it gets from Itaipu was largely that it exports most of its energy to Brazil and then uses the rent money for internal growth and internal development. That was meant to change in 2019, if I'm not wrong, because there was a bilateral trade deal between Brazil and Paraguay regarding energy consumption and energy sales of the Itaipu. That fell through and a lot of people, there was massive backlash saying that the deal heavily favours Brazil because costs of electricity went down in the Brazilian consumption market. How central to the Paraguayan economy is the Itaipu Dam? And uh, do you think there is a need for more hydroelectric energy to be used within Paraguay as opposed to exported?
2: Yes, I think it's critically important. And just one clarification, that agreement that you referred to in 2019 was a secret, a confidential agreement that was signed between um, leading advisors of the current presidency and, and the Brazilian authorities. And when it was leaked, it was actually leaked by officials involved in those negotiations who refused to go along with it. And it did, as you said, cause a backlash and very nearly led to the impeachment of the president. And The key date here is is actually 2023, when the 50-year treaty um, is up for renewal. During these 50 years, and this is why Paraguayans of all political persuasions, feel that this treaty is unfair. Under the agreement which was signed back in 1973 between two military governments, Paraguay owns 50% of the energy, but is required to sell to Brazil any part of its 50% that it doesn't use itself. And so in practice, that has meant that uh, the bulk of Paraguay's 50% has, as you said, gone gone to Brazil. But on top of that, the the payment in inverted commas for that is called a, it's actually in the, in the terms of the agreement, it's called a compensation in fact, it is not related whatsoever to the regional market price of hydro energy. And Professor Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University carried out a study in 2013, which confirmed what, what Paraguayans have been sort of knowing intuitively for, for decades that, that the, the price, uh, in inverted commas, that it sells to Brazil was, was somewhere in the region of 10%. Of the of the of the regional market price so 2030 is crucially important to get a better deal with Brazil and particularly to liberate Paraguay from having to sell any any surplus from its 50% just to Brazil to enable it to sell to other countries Chile wants it Argentina wants it there's even a possibility that Bolivia in the future may want it but at the moment they can't sell it to other countries and the sales of to whichever country should now, in, in, in this is a, the, the hope in the negotiations, should reflect uh, regional uh, market prices for for hydro energy. But uh, indeed, the, the the cash cow you could call it that of, the, of, the, of Itaipu in the future could be, with good governance, with good uh, political management, could be a major stepping stone to transforming the
1: structure of the economy in the interests of the, of the well-being of the majority of the population. Taking a step back, you spoke about a lack of industrialization in the country and you spoke about that Itaipu isn't being harnessed enough for energy-based development of industry in Paraguay. Are there any other bottlenecks, the industrialization in Paraguay? Why hasn't it happened yet?
2: Why hasn't it happened? I mean, the, the, the crude answer, and, and this is the answer that many Paraguayans will give if you interviewed them, is because a succession of political leaders over the period from 70, remember 73 up to 89 was a military dictatorship in any case, have been bought off by Brazil. Brazil is an enormously powerful country uh, next door to Paraguay, its GDP is is many many times greater than Paraguay, and it has exercised a lot of power and influence above the table and under the table to continue this um, unfair arrangement whereby Paraguay does not use its energy um, to industrialize stepping stones in that direction uh, as you are asking uh, clearly what what it what, what what's crucial is to uh, is to construct a fast uh, high voltage transmission network from the site of the dam which is on the brazilian border um to the major urban areas particularly the capital city of Asuncion about Uh, 300 kilometers away and that that is being done Uh, that is being done at the moment. Finally there is now the technical possibility for for industrialization. There are limitations Paraguayans um, location in the heart of Latin America, it's a landlocked country, but it could supply goods uh, industrial goods to many countries uh, which are located uh, in in the surrounding area, but the major blockage is is is, is technical capacity, and there is a, a desperate need to strengthen uh, skills in in engineering, in uh, electricity uh, uh, production and distribution, and that this is happening. Uh, at the moment, one particular project, which uh, is what economists call low hanging fruit, I suppose, is to resurrect the, the uh, railway uh, that once existed between um, the southern uh, city on the Argentinian border called Enconacion and Asuncion. This was built uh interestingly, in the 1860s, it began to be built uh, during the period of national economic development, uh, as I think you referred to in one of your podcasts, with the use of British railway engineers. Um, and then it gradually fell into abeyance and the track is still there. It's not a mountainous country. It, it, it would be, with, with the political will, using the hydro energy from Itaipu, it seems... Uh, to be uh, an obvious candidate for a priority state I- I investment project, which would also raise uh, economic activity in many of the rural areas um, that the, the railway passes through. And one hopes that after 2023, after a better deal is, is uh, sorted out with Brazil, that a project of this kind could get off the ground.
1: Talking about political will and um, administrative or technical capacity of the state, what is public institutions like in Paraguay today? Because you spoke a bit about this in your paper in 2010 about the political economy of Paraguay, talking about a lack of institutionalization. Has that changed over the past 10 years? Is the current Colorado regime working towards better institutions or better public sector provisions?
2: Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. The, a major obstacle to uh, improved public sector management in Paraguay is, the, is the, 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 the culture, the nature of the public administration, which is riven with clientelism and, and corruption. There is a, a civil service law on the statute books and the law itself is, is quite a good one. Uh, it talks about selection by merit, promotion on the basis of regular uh, performance management of staff members, but in practice this doesn't happen. Uh, And it is a very poor quality uh, civil service system. But then that links into the nature of politics. And the main reason for that is that the major political party, which has dominated the country, more or less with the exception of three or four year period in the. Uh, from 2008 to 2012, since 1946, the Colorado Party um, depends for its support primarily on offering jobs to people in the state apparatus. So um, to break that link and to introduce a proper merit system would mean downplaying this organic link between party and state, which has been the bedrock of the power of the Colorado Party. Probably now, after the demise of the PRI in Mexico, it's, uh, it's certainly one of the oldest political parties in Latin America, formed in 18, 1887, but it's been uh, in, in power for, for, for decades and decades. And it's very firmly rooted in the Paraguayan culture. That, that's another aspect. It will not be easy to change this arrangement because for most poor, low educated, poorly educated Paraguayans, that is how politics is understood, that is how they see politics it's not seen there is no pressure at the moment for what 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 sociologists call programmatic political parties. there is no demand that parties should at election time say well if we vote for us we will do this and we will do that it's all based on on effective uh, loyalties colors parties songs uh, the, the kind of politics that that in many countries now political cultures being questioned uh, uh, in the much of latin america
1: likewise but but not in paraguay interesting um is the private sector providing any competition to an underdeveloped public sector like because paraguay has historically been an incredibly open latin american country to foreign trade and investment is there a growing private sector is there a growing industry in private sector and has that provided any competition for even labor employment to the government and to government state apparatus Well, it has. It's certainly true that the
2: private sector is flourishing, but the private sector, the bulk of the private sector, is linked in one way or another, directly or indirectly. Indirectly to this particular um, style of development that I, I talked about earlier, the overemphasis on the export of unprocessed agricultural goods. Where you have seen some private, uh, some private sector investment has been in the gradual move towards some semi-processing of agricultural products and, and meat products before they go onto the world market. There's also quite a uh, been quite a growth in the construction sector. Um, and and uh, and in, in the retail sector, dr- dramatic growth in supermarkets. Um, but the the limitations to this industrial growth, uh, for the domestic market, are the uh, inequality in 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 income distribution. Paraguay during this period of rapid um, externally generated growth has become. Uh, it was already uh, a very unequal society It's become, the distribution of income and wealth has become even, even more unequal that, than it was uh, back at the beginning of this, of this century. So there are limitations to that, uh, th- that private sector involvement. We should mention, by the way, it's important to mention that there is a flourishing illicit private sector, a very powerful illicit private sector as Paraguay has become integrated into the transit routes for narcotics smuggling um, Coming mainly from the Andean countries through Paraguay and then onwards either to Brazil or Argentina To supply the domestic markets, but also to supply uh, global markets particularly in Europe Paraguay um, is, is on the on the transit roots for cocaine smuggling in a big way, uh, but also is, is itself a, a major producer of marijuana. Most of the marijuana produced in Paraguay does not enter the, the global market. It is sold in, in, in Brazil, in the large cities of Brazil, Argentina, and Chile. But this is very, very big business. Um, allied to that in a way is the, the smuggling activity that goes on around the Brazilian border in a whole range of goods particularly to the, the Brazilian market, it started off many years ago with liquor and and cigarettes, but now it's expanded to small arms to supply um, the drug um, gangs in the favelas of the large cities of Brazil. And interestingly, a few years ago, the United States, in a rather unreported decision, uh, banned the export of small arms to Paraguay, Precisely for that reason, because of the, the the growing evidence that these small arms were ending up in um, in Brazil on the cigarette front, there are four of five major cigarette factories around the Brazilian border, and their combined production would suggest that, that Paraguay, if it was all for the domestic market, as they say it is, would have one of the highest rates of smoking in the world. Each, each citizen would be smoking cigarettes every 10 cigarettes a day, uh, every year. And of course, clearly, these cigarette figures are, are inaccurate. The vast bulk of the production is smuggled across the border to Brazil. And that, again, is a very lucrative
1: trade. Is there ever any bleed from this illicit and even the informal sector into the formal taxable sector in Paraguay, which is to say that if you are trading goods cross-border and earning money in Brazil, does that money ever enter the formal sector or benefit the economy at all? Or is it just a lost income? (laughs) Well, but yes, it does. I mean, h- h- here is the paradox:
2: whereas the the dynamic formal sector, as I said, is highly capital intensive and employs very few people, the illicit part of the informal sector is is rather labour intensive. Much of this. Um, much of the cigarettes, for example, take that as an example, are ferried across the border to Brazil at night in small boats in in canoes, and or, or across the border, some of the electronic goods goes across the border on young men taking them across on motorbikes. So it empl- it does employ a, a lot of people. Marijuana production employs a lot of people. So you have uh, perhaps understandable defence. Of these illicit activities by broad sectors of the poor population uh, because they do not see in the short term any other viable economic opportunities for themselves and their children and that is in, in a way that's another obstacle to, to change to formalizing the economy and but in the long run the only long-term solution to this I think is, is a process of industrialization to begin to provide higher paid permanent jobs for people who are currently working in, on low income in the informal sector. I know this will take a considerable amount of time, but Paraguay does have this enormous
1: potential hydro energy which makes this feasible. All right, so if there is a large amount of employment of poor people and impoverished communities in illicit and informal market sectors, Is the government trying to actively change this or is there too much pushback from the local populace to actually implement any change? Well, it's not so much
2: that the government has begun this process and has faced a pushback from these people. It hasn't even begun this process. I think there is, I would rather call the the key word here, will be inertia rather than the fear of pushback. Inertia because the people who who, who run the country, who dominate the political system, uh, somewhere in the region of 50 to 60, very powerful families, um, are responsible for the bulk of, of economic activity in the formal sector in one way or another, I think these people, their mindset is, well, things are going quite well at the moment. Why, why bother to rock the boat? Why bother to move in the direction of industrialization, the complications that that involved, um, Unless we see the arrival at the higher levels of the political system of a very far-sighted Politician who is thinking about um, transforming uh, living standards and the future of the country over a sort of 50 year
1: time period, this isn't going to happen. All right, but these are probably central policymakers for the central government of Paraguay. There has been some degree of decentralization post the Stresno period. What's the role of local governments and local administrative capacities and municipalities to implement change within their own municipality or within their own local area? Well, uh, local government
2: um, has historically been um, extremely um, limited and under the control of central government. It's only in 1991, I think, two years after the dictatorship um, was ended, that uh, local mayors, uh, uh, local chief executives, at the municipal level were elected for the first time in the history of the country so it 's a relatively recent process on top of that, the amount of funding that they receive in intergovernment financial transfers from central government are, are relatively limited in fact mo- the, the bulk of the funds they get from outside for development purposes comes from Itaipu from a, a special um, a royalty payment that they, they, that they, are, <coughs> that they benefit from. Um, but the problem is not so much that. It, it's not so much the lack of administrative capacity or the lack of funds. It's, again, going back to the point I mentioned earlier, that the local government, to some extent, even more so than central government, if you looked at the, compare the composition with the Senate or, or the lower house of Congress, local government's even more dominated by
1: the Colorado Party which is which would probably mean that the local government is also is rife with high degrees of endemic corruption. Exactly.
2: <laughs> take the words, the words out of my mouth. And that, that is the tragedy. And the, the tragedy of this now, of course, is that when the decentralization, this mild decentralization, began to take off, going back now to the 1990s, uh, following uh, a mood that had happened a decade earlier in much of the rest of Latin America, there were, amongst... Um, uh, uh, thoughtful Paraguayans, a real hope that this was going to transform the the political culture of the country and improve governance. Um, but it has been a great disappointment and there is now a, a pushback, the word you used earlier. There is a growing feeling amongst quite progressive, uh, uh, well-minded Paraguayans that decentralization is good, that we should return, resort, return to a more centralized system because of the, the levels of, of, of corruption that, that have ever at the local level. However, I should qualify this statement because I've had the opportunity to study local government in Paraguay in some detail and I must say there are many, many, not just a few, there are many examples of good municipal management in Paraguay. So we, we should be careful not to tie the brush of all of municipalities. Um, and, and some of them are, are have been under the leadership of the Colorado party. Isn't it? So, so one has to have, a, I think, a more nuanced interpretation of, of, of what's going on. Um, I still think that with all its failings, um, local government, um, And decentralization is something still to be supported in in the Paraguayan case, while recognizing at the same time that there are still many obstacles,
1: as there are throughout any aspect of the reform process of the civil service. So you would say that the local governance and decentralization still has potential in allowing the Paraguayan economy to grow and develop? i do i do i do think
2: i do think so yes i i do think that um uh, pa- Paraguay has um following the lead of Brazil and many other countries around the world it it instituted um a conditional cash transfer program cct program for the alleviation of extreme poverty a, a program that's now Become common in many countries around the world, highly supported by the UN agencies in the early years, whereby um, families, and it's always the, the female head of household, receives a small amount, $50, $60 a month, in exchange for a commitment that the children will go to school, that they will have the that their vaccination record will be up to date, and in some cases that they will undertake, that they will attend classes in basic hygiene and uh, handicraft manufacture. Um, and what's it, why I'm mentioning this is because that local governments are involved in this. They're involved in the selection of beneficiaries. Now. One might have thought that given the political culture of corruption of the Colorado Party, this would be you know, a free-for-all for the local Colorado leaders in the 260 or so municipalities in the country to ensure that only their families, their supporters, and uh, their party members uh, benefited. But I have been struck by the fact that, in practice, the selection process has been fairly equitable and um there of course have been abuses but it hasn't been a massive abuse um of of this of this power and it could have could well have been could well have been because civil society is um civil society is extremely uh, weak still in paraguay um and this could have happened but but again local government has in practice uh, played a rather positive role in the implementation of this of this program.
1: Have conditional cash transfers though come at the cost of some other rural developmental policy? So could they have been used to improve the sanitation regime otherwise, or is it an independent policy that doesn't have that much opportunity cost? No, I don't think there is
2: any 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 danger of of it cutting into other other programs for. Uh, raising living standards in rural areas, because the amounts are relatively small. It's only $100 million a year. Um, It's it's not a a major program. There are uh, rural sanitation programs proceeding um, quite effectively in in Paraguay um, over over the past few decades. Um, Where there really is a blockage in terms of, of governmental support for small farmers is on the question of land reform. Um, and the increasing shortage of land for um, small, small families. Um, the background to this is that during the dictatorship, a a, a land reform program. I use the words advisedly, perhaps I should say land reform in inverted commas, was carried out uh, uh, by the uh, military dictatorship. But the land, and then this was supposed to be um, exclusively for for small farmers. But in practice, the vast bulk of the over 10 million hectares of land that was distributed went to military leaders, political support, senior political supporters, um, and foreign buyers at very, very low uh, rates, uh, way, way below the the market rate for the land. And um, this land, much of this land was subsequently resold to Brazilian land speculators, who in turn sold this land to Brazilian farmers who moved across the border to produce soybean in Paraguay. And so now we have about 90 to 95% of the soybean production that I referred to earlier is actually produced by um, uh, Farmers of and companies of Brazilian origin, which is a a rather worrying um, issue uh, if one looks at the long-term development of the Paraguay because of the uh, resentment that this has caused amongst landless farmers in the country itself. So uh, the, every year, well, this year has been cancelled because of the pandemic. Every year around April or May, we have seen uh, a march through the capital city of usually 20,000, 25,000 small farmers calling on the government to actually implement a proper land reform and sort out this um, this. Uh, Complicated mess that's being created by the sale and resale of land to to people who really, even according to the government's own laws, were not entitled to this land. But it still hasn't happened. It still hasn't happened. Um, uh, what you do have is, uh, as as in all countries, you have a Ministry of Agriculture with a um, an extension service providing uh, technical assistance and some credit. To, to small farmers, but it is very weak in Paraguay, and it is deeply corrupt and inefficient, and that is a, a, a branch of the government that really needs to be strengthened in the future to support small farmers, to enable them to raise their, their productivity, the fertility of their land, get access to credit, and to begin to uh, uh, enter uh, the the commercial market selling to uh, retailers in the city and in some cases selling overseas. The only example of small farmers involvement at the moment in in the global market in this global agricultural change is in the export of sesame uh, mainly going
1: to Japan but that is very much the exception. Seeing as land is concentrated among a few people does this not have the additional benefit of generating economies of scale in the commercial agricultural sector, and would you break that economy of scale if you were to redistribute land um,
2: that's an interesting question i think i I, I think this that there is there is some some truth in that, but a large amount of that land. Uh, which is owned by a very small proportion of the population, is not in, in, in uh, cultivation of crops. It's in still very, rather extensive cattle ranching. And the pressure from small farmers who invade land to um, to uh, recoup land, as they see it, has been primarily invading land which is owned by cattle ranchers, land which is is not being used very, very, very productively. As cattle ranching moves, as I mentioned earlier, to this feedstock method, um, the actual amount of land that's needed for rearing um, uh, uh, intensively cattle for the uh, global market is less, and that would release land for, for small farmers. There have been some invasions of land which is used for soybean production, but the these invasions have been primarily Generated by uh, disquiet over uh, lax environmental regulations and the use of uh, illegal pesticides by small and crop spraying, which has um, damaged the health of communities living adjacent to uh, Brazilian owned sm- soybean plantations. So, what, there is an element of, of truth in, in this argument, but I, I think even so. The numbers of small farmers who are c- crying out for land and have been doing so for the past couple of decades is relatively small and could easily be accommodated by um, a redistribution of some of this land which had been illegally sold uh, to to
1: foreign buyers. Yep, agreed. I, I do think like the inequality in land distribution is awful in Paraguay. But is there any other way to fix or address the large amounts of wealth and income inequality in Paraguay? Well, um, one way
2: would be to begin to tax properly the five or at the very most 10% of the population who control over 80% of the land and whose living standards are those comparable to what you would say, what you would class upper middle class families in, in Western Europe. And that could be done through income tax. Income tax was finally introduced in um, around 2005, Um, but the level of deductions are are so, in one sense, so hilarious that the amount that's collected by income tax is still very small. Income tax, the latest figures suggested, it still only uh, accounts for about two percent of of the tax take of the Paraguayan government, of which uh, over two-thirds is still coming from indirect taxation, particularly from VAT. Um, Why is the tax take from income tax, which is trying to raise money from those at the top of the uh, income profile, why is it uh, so ineffective? Because the deductions include such things as Overseas travel purchase of vehicles educational um, expenses for children overseas uh, medical expenses in other words the deductions are for any virtually any uh, any expenditure in, in supermarkets any expenditure that people eligible liable for the for income tax that make can be as long as they keep the receipts can be deducted against their income tax liability even this is even assuming that they actually declare their accurate estimate of their gross income which i suspect many of them will will not do but let's assume they they do that the deductions are so enormous so wide ranging that in practice the latest figures from the ministry of Health, of, of finance tax department show that in 2018, only 50% of those people, and uh, by the way, there are only 200,000 people registered for, t- for income tax, only only half of them had actually paid any income tax whatsoever, because for the other half, the deductions outweighed their liability for income tax. And as I, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, Of the hundred thousand or so who did pay some tax it must have been very small because income tax is no more than two percent of total tax receipts. So there is an enormous um, push that could be made in, in that field but again one has to bear in mind the political culture of the country. When noises are made in this direction and to be fair in the press uh, particularly in the past year, in the past six months, because of the pandemic, there have been a number of surprising editorials calling for uh, a greater tax pressure on those who can, ease, can better afford to contribute to overcoming the pandemic. The, the response has been almost hysterical. Um, if we increase tax, income tax, it's going to en- endanger the economic development of the country. People aren't going to work hard. Um, it's going to bring the economy to its knees. All these kind of vitriolic and extreme statements coming from Uh, from those who who currently pay minimal amounts of of income tax and on top of that a very subtle and rather nasty campaign which took place when an earlier attempt was made to to raise tax through um, reducing deductions. Uh, there was a a campaign almost, a very subtle campaign in the media, suggesting that ordinary people, poorer people, middle class and poorer people, would also be subject to income tax, which of course was never the the intention and, and would not be meaningful in any way because the administrative costs of collecting income tax from the bulk of the Paraguayan population would would outweigh the amount of money that could be collected from those people. But again, it created a kind of uh, psychosis outside the elite that income tax was something bad. So moving in this direction is not, even that is not
1: as easy as it sounds. I'm slightly confused though, because if all your expenditure virtually is tax deductible, what does that mean for savings in the country and the financial sector in the country? Let's take an example of a, uh, an elite member who saves
2: money in, in the bank, in, in often overseas. Those um savings are not uh, are, are themselves not eligible for taxation there are no, no taxation on those savings as there would be in in uh, for example in, in in the united kingdom or, or most oecd countries so th- this is quite 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 separate um, those an elite member can continue to save and the financial sector can continue to operate uh, normally um at the same time as you have these extensive deductions for for
1: income tax. The the, the two things in that sense are not incompatible. Uh, I want to come back to the media because, again, in your 2010 report on the political economy, and you've spoken about this before, the media and large media conglomerates in Paraguay are actively Mm -hmm. against or opposing structural reform. Why is this the case? And why does the media often portray things like income tax as evil things?
2: Okay, here I, I I have to sort of hand on heart, revise some of the views that I expressed in that article that you referred to. The, the simple answer in general is that the media is owned by the richest families. If we take the three daily newspapers, I mean there is literally a, a clear correlation. The Main newspaper Ababbasikolo is owned by a family called Zukulilio family the The head of the family uh, died recently, but the the reins have been assumed by his daughter, but the family is still very much in control. They are a large um, not so much their large landowner they are a massively important uh, real estate. Um, company. They are involved in a whole range of of, 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 of other other activities, supermarkets in particular in the country. The second newspaper, Ultima Ora, owned by uh, a family called Viesi, um, is one of the main, is probably the largest um, company distributing imported goods in, in the country. So all white goods, electronic goods, Uh, imported foodstuffs, sophisticated uh, foods, items from all over the world. They distribute these, and they also have uh, land holdings. Uh, The third newspaper, La Nacion, the third largest circulation newspaper, is owned by the former president of the country, uh, President Cartes, who was president from 2013 to 2018, who is generally regarded as the richest man in Paraguay. So the simplistic answer is that the groups that control the media, and I should say, by the way, that each of these also control a range of, of, of radio stations and have linkages to TV channels. I didn't mention that. Abyss has its own TV channel, for example, and the others have um, own uh, shareholdings in other channels. So they, they are media conglomerates. That they have little interest in in these kind of structural reforms that we 've been talking about this morning, however, I must recognize that perhaps there's a response to the pandemic and the realization as in many countries as in in, in, in our own country that the people who have been most hard hit by the pandemic are often the people that we 've least paid attention to the poorer people the people as they say on the front line there's been somewhat even in paraguay even this deeply um unequal society there has been a growing recognition of the plight of the less fortunate and that has led to editorials in the second particularly the ultima aura the newspaper owned by the viasi family actually saying that it's about time that the elite, in a way, is a message to themselves uh, that, that that the elite should begin to pay more tax. That we should contribute more to the um, to getting the country out of the uh, recession caused by the pandemic, um, and and helping those uh, to alleviate poverty caused by by coronavirus. Because uh, the welfare underpinning that the government has been able to introduce in such an unequal society, of course, has been, has been very scant indeed. And there's a lot of suffering, a lot of poverty, a lot of people going at, going without food in Paraguay in, 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 the, in the past six months. So uh, you could see this in some ways as a light on the horizon, that, that there is a sector perhaps in the elite which is recognizing the need for greater social responsibility, Maybe it will wither away as the coronavirus threat um, dissipates. I don't know.
1: At the moment, it does look like a, a positive sign. That does sound like a light in the face of COVID-19 and an impending recession. I want to take yes. a step back and talk about local trade blocs and international trade and their role in helping the Paraguayan economy, specifically Mercosur and the local trade bloc between um Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay mainly. From what I've read, production capacities of soybean and production efficiency of agricultural resources such as soybean are higher in Brazil than they are in Paraguay. And seeing as both countries export the same produce, doesn't that place them in direct con- competition with one another? And isn't this probably bad for the Paraguayan economy as opposed to a good coming of the free trade agreement?
2: Well, I'm not a specialist on on the the, this, the global soybean market, but certainly I can tell I can tell you, Ashan, that, that it's not seen in that way. It's certainly not seen in that way. And perhaps one of the reasons is that the bulk the bulk of the of the soybeans I mentioned in Paraguay is grown by Paraguayan by Brazilian growers uh, and Brazilian companies. To some extent, there are there is the involvement of of some multinational companies, but the multinational companies dominate the export of soybean and other cereals. Uh, the so-called, the famous ABCD companies are all there in Paraguay. Archer Miller from the United States, Bunke, which used to be Argentinian, but which is now an American company, Cargill, Conti, and Dreyfus, in addition to which you have uh, a major Russian exporter and also, also an exporter from the People's Republic of China, um, exporting soybean now from Paraguay. And this is interesting because Paraguay is one of the few countries in the world that does not, still doesn't have diplomatic relations with the PRC. It is uh, diplomatically allied with, with Taiwan. Now, the bulk of the uh, produce, the soybean uh, uh, produced in Paraguay, now the fourth largest export in the world, actually enters the world market by going downriver through Argentina, not through Brazil. Um, it goes down on barges. Paraguay is one of the largest um, um, has one of the largest fleets of barges in the world now, uh, and that goes down transshipped in, in ports in Uruguay and Argentina, Buenos Aires, onto onto the world market. And because perhaps because the the produce is, is exported by these global companies there is not the same sense of competition between the Brazilian growers and the, and, and the Paraguayan growers. Remember Paraguayan soybean is, is a, considered to be of, of a high quality globally, uh, and the productivity, the fertility of the, sand, of the land at the moment is good, so the, uh, the yield uh, is, is as high as that in, in, in Brazil and although the transport costs to the world market are a little higher because of the landlocked nature of the country but that is also true of a large part of the soybean grown in brazil which is grown in the west of brazil and has to be um um has to be fer- well not shipped or ferried has to be taken by in the brazilian case by by um by by trucks to the ports uh, in the northeast of brazil and then on the atlantic coast so this sense of competition uh, is certainly something that uh, with brazil is certainly something that that's i've never seen reported in the press and i suspect it, it's probably not 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 a significant issue
1: okay uh, but that does make a lot of sense because i haven't read about it anywhere it just intuitively sounded like mm. it should exist given they are competing markets or competing countries producing the same competitive good. uh we've spoken a bit about foreign direct investment i want to talk a bit about international organizations especially the IMF and the World Bank in development in Paraguay, because I know the IMF helped Paraguay after their financial crash in 95 and 97. Um, Do they still have a role in providing aid to the country in developmental payments or in infrastructure projects? And what is the role of developmental banks in particular in helping Paraguay's infrastructure develop and grow? Yes, they do have a significant
2: role. First, let's take the IMF, as you said, the IMF did contribute to uh, overcoming the financial crisis of the uh, mid-1990s and the main main, uh, support that it's given in that respect, uh, apart from emergency loans to help the country overcome um, uh, a debt overhang, Uh, has been to uh, help with reform of banking legislation and to tighten up um, uh, laws on banks to avoid the common practice that occurred in the past, much less so now, of of banks lending um, under the table to some extent, lending to their, their, their own owners and avoiding proper checks on the use of, of funds and that led to uh, a high uh, bad debt rates and eventually to collapse of several banks. And it's when the IMF came in and, and helped with, with these kind of almost legal reforms, and, but not just the legal reforms, the implementation, strengthening the powers of the central bank to, to monitor uh, levels of, of indebtedness by the banking system. Um, that's been, I think that's been the major contribution. As far as I know, um, uh, Well, no, yes, uh, the, uh, as a result of the pandemic, Paraguay has acce- had access to emergency finance, as many countries have, from, from the IMF. But apart from that, over the past decade, borrowing from the IMF has been minimal. On the on the World Bank, Paraguay's had a rather checkered history with the World Bank. Um, during uh, certain periods, during part of the dictatorship, Um, corruption levels on World Bank loans, uh, particularly on World Bank loans, were were so high that the World Bank pulled back and froze its lending program to Paraguay for a number of years. It is still there. It's not a particularly major player uh, because of a lot of World Bank conditionality now to make sure that the lending is such as to uh, benefit predominantly sectors excluded from uh, normal lending uh, opportunities has meant that the 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 complexity of signing agreement with the world bank is 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 much greater than it is with with other lending um, organizations particularly the inter-american development bank which lends more money to paraguay over the past decade or so than has has the world bank it's another regional development bank but both the particularly the Inter-American Development Bank then has gone into lending for for physical infrastructure, for road building in particular, building bridges and roads and because Paraguay's one bad legacy of the dictatorship has been uh, a very limited uh, road network, uh, highway network and so that is being addressed now and and certainly the physical integration of the country is proceeding much more rapidly now, thanks to a number of, of these uh, loans coming from the Inter-American Development Bank and the Andean Development Corporation uh, as, as well. And some money also coming through a small regional development offshoot that the Mercosur has uh, set up itself, but that's pretty, pretty small. Um, but most of the Uh, financing now as we speak that is coming to keep the uh, the investment program the state investment program uh, going is coming from from borrowing overseas uh, issue of of bonds which is causing some disquiet in in certain quarters uh, amongst Paraguayan economists that the the borrowing is at a is too fast a rate and the criticism there is is we are borrowing too much because we're not raising Enough domestically through improving the the tax pressure through reforms of income tax, as we talked about earlier, and clamping down on the evasion of value added tax and the evasion of company taxation. So it's it, it 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 is a it is a mix. The so in a nutshell, I would say the, the IMF has been important in the past and is still important also in pressing for reform of of, of income taxes this is extraordinary paradox is that the imf is often seen by the elite which is opposed to income tax reform as, as a sort of a questionable organization in, in most parts of the world, the IMF is decried as a as a sort of symbol or many parts of the world as a symbol of of global imperialism and uh, telling countries what to do whereas in Paraguay <laughs> the elite is so far to the right of the political spectrum that the IMF is seen as an unduly progressive body uh, uh, forcing its um, reforms in terms of of, of greater uh, taxation on 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 an unwilling country
1: i think that we've actually spoken about a lot and this has been an incredibly information dense episode so far could you summarize what in your mind are the main obstacles for development in paraguay and what's the biggest drivers for change in paraguay the main
2: obstacle to long-term development in paraguay i think is the current political culture which is that of a system that does not prioritize improving the well-being of the mass of the population. The political elite who have dominated the country now for decades and decades are not acting in the general interest of the broad population. For that to change It requires a radical improvement in educational standards so that the broad mass of the population are aware of their own rights and are demanding their own rights, their right to a better living standard. To carry that out, it's necessary to harness the enormous potential of hydroelectricity that Paraguay has been given through the Itaipu Dam and also the Yasurita, Yasurita Dam with Argentina. And that's why the 2023 renegotiation of the treaty with Brazil is without doubt the most important public policy issue facing the country, or that has faced the country over the past 50 or so years. It is crucially important that Paraguay drives a hard bargain and gets the right to determine its own utilization of its share of the hydro energy. And also that a political leadership is prepared to use that right for the benefit of the broad mass of the population. This is an enormous challenge. And in order to ensure that this happens, it's necessary to have a national campaign to raise awareness of the current situation and how Paraguay could change over the coming decades after 2023, if it's quite just demand for fair renegotiation with Brazil is achieved.
1: Just one final question. Do you have any book recommendations or recommendations of journal articles that someone can access if they want to better understand the economic and developmental situation of Paraguay today.
2: Well you put me in a very embarrassing situation Ashan and I, I will be quite blunt and say it's, this is awful isn't it when a, when, when a speaker um, recommends their own book but in, in a way it is it is justified because unfortunately in the English language there is not really any comprehensive um, overview of Paraguay's history, culture, society, challenges. And I'm fortunate that with a colleague, uh, Professor Peter Lambert, um, who is one of the um, pro vice chancellors of Bath University in, in, in England, we have uh, produced uh, a few years ago a, a, a book called The Paraguay Reader. And it is a reader. It's a compendium of over eighty extracts of key articles, giving an introduction to the country. Uh, very useful for teaching purposes. Produced and published by Duke University Press. The um, reader. And um, I, I that uh, was in two thousand and thirteen. I would I would recommend that to your to your listeners, frankly.
1: Excellent. I actually would also recommend them to just read your book about the transition to democracy in Paraguay, which you again wrote with Peter Lambert back in, I think, 2010 or before that Mm -hmm. maybe. because I used a lot of that for my research. But thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. I think this was excellent. I think it's incredibly information dense and incredibly helpful to anyone listening. Well, thank you very much, Asam, for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.